Good evening, Harvest. Uh, the eagle-eyed uh, purveyors of the bulletin have now realized that, yes, I am not Dale, and I'm not preaching on forgiveness tonight, and I promise it wasn't an outcome of our strategic planning to dupe the congregation every once in a while and get me up here. Um, but here we are, and this evening, instead, I'm going to be preaching from 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, which uh, Dean said I couldn't get any more ones uh, in my passage if I tried. So if you have a copy of Scripture, please open up to 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you may uh, convict us, that you may encourage us, that you may impress the realities of your gospel upon our hearts and minds in a way that truly transform us, that we can behold Christ with joy and with thanksgiving, and that it may be the overflow of our hearts um, that we delight in Christ and seek to love him and love others as a result. And we pray that you may do this work through the power of your word, Lord. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So for most of my life, uh, I haven't studied this much, but I've always found the idea of navigating the waters to be pretty fascinating. If you think about it, in a pre-GPS world, like how in the world were people able to navigate the seas in these boats using only things like the sun and the stars and all the rest? And I consider it a near miracle, because if you ask Tiffany, I think I need to ask all the time for directions to places I've driven to at least a dozen times. And so uh, I've become dependent on it. And I think for many of us, uh, something like GPS has become second nature, something that we take for granted. And it's convenient, right? Uh, but the more and more that we take it for granted, I think that we start to lose something. And namely what I mean is that I think we're starting to lose our connection to our bearings. Because you see, the reason why all these adventurers and navigators were able to traverse the waters, to traverse this world over centuries and centuries before GPS was ever invented is because they oriented themselves around fixed points. They were able to get their bearings because of the world that they observed around them. And we see this all the way back, uh, even when we read something like the Odyssey. Odysseus and his men, it said that they didn't sail too far away from the shore because that way they could always see the islands and they could orient themselves around these landmarks. Or beyond that, when the islands uh, would fade away, when there's no more landmarks, they would uh, look at the trajectory of the sun in order to orient themselves on the direction they needed to go. And beyond that, they would look to the stars and they would develop tools like a sextant and all these other things to uh, have fixed points, to have these constants by which they can traverse the path that they had to take before them. 
And so as we have GPS, uh, we, we've lost that connection to our bearings uh, for navigation. But even though we don't have that same vital connection to navigational bearings, I do think that this idea is so important for the Christian life, that we need to have the appropriate gospel bearings, the appropriate gospel constants, these fixed points that we orient ourselves around and that help us navigate the waters of this Christian life. Because without these gospel bearings, it's easy for us to drift off. It's easy for us to verge off of course or to even make a shipwreck of our faith. And that's the situation that Paul is writing about to Timothy in tonight's passage. You see, there are these false teachers that have come up in the church at Ephesus. There are men who have lost their gospel bearings. And as a result, they are putting their faith in jeopardy and they are putting the church at risk of danger, putting at risk of the purity and the unity of the church. But as we see this, Paul reminds us that the antidote to theological drifting, to theological division and diversion is a church that has a faithful focus on the gospel that aims towards love. He's trying to get the church to have a faithful focus on the gospel that aims towards love. And so as we consider that idea tonight, we're going to look at it under two headings. We're going to look at a corrective charge with a gospel aim. So beginning with a corrective charge, we see that Paul wastes no time getting down to business with Timothy. If you look with me at verses 3 and 4, it's almost like he's starting the conversation mid-thought. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. You see, he has charged Timothy to stay at Ephesus in order to correct false teachers. And Paul's urgency doesn't come from any kind of naivety, doesn't come from any lack of experience in Timothy. Because he'll say later in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth. He chose Timothy to be here for a reason. But instead, Paul's urgency comes from the fact that there is an immense gravity to the situation uh, brought about by these false teachers. And you might be asking yourself, well, what exactly is the situation? Because it doesn't seem like Paul is giving us at least very much to go off of. There seems to be an assumption that they both know the situation at hand. And it's true, he doesn't give many details beyond a few hints at what the false teaching comprises. But thankfully, we can look to Acts 19 and 20, which if you have scripture, I would open ahead to Acts 20, um, because it provides us with some helpful insight into Paul's relationship with this Ephesian church. See, in Acts 19, we see that Paul, in his missionary travels, makes his way to Ephesus. And it's a really unique time because he spends almost three years there in Ephesus, the longest time he spends in any other place throughout his missionary journeys. And so he spends nearly three years planting a church, establishing it, building it up, getting to know these people. And at the end of that time, he decides to set sail to Macedonia. And at that time, he puts Timothy in charge of that church, the one who he calls at the beginning of this letter his child in the faith. The one who was his partner is now taking over this work. So Paul leaves for Macedonia. He leaves Timothy in charge at Ephesus. And after some time, he comes back to visit Ephesus, which turns out to be the last time he'll ever see many of these people. And what he does is he returns to Ephesus. He gathers the elders and he issues a charge and a warning. So if you've opened up to Acts 20, we're going to read verses 27 through 31. So he's gathered all of these elders and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers for the, uh, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul, at the beginning of this letter, he is writing Timothy, and we're, we see, based on this background, that his warning has come true. Men have arisen from within the church who are teaching false doctrine. 
And so he opens this way to merely reaffirm what he already told Timothy and the elders that last day in Ephesus. It's as if he's saying, be alert. False teachers are both coming in from outside and rising up from within the sheep. Remember your calling. Remember, stay watchful, correct these men, protect the flock. The urgency hasn't left. And I know that Paul is primarily addressing Timothy in this letter. He's primarily addressing the elders in Acts 20. But I don't want it to be missed on us that this charge to correct false teaching extends to the entirety of the church in all ages. This emphasis is vital to the ongoing protection and preservation of Christ's bride. And we see this play out time and again throughout church history. And it usually happens through um, the church stating what it believes through affirmations and denials. This is what we believe, and this is what we don't believe. And often these denials are more reactive than they are proactive. They're kind of like the, uh, the little sign that you get on your McDonald's coffee cup that says, caution, content's hot. Uh, there's a reason why that sign exists. Somebody made a mistake at some point, and McDonald's is trying to ensure that it won't happen again, or just that they don't get another lawsuit. But in a similar way, there are times when false teaching has made its way in the church, and so it's necessary for us to state what we believe and what we don't believe in order to remember, in order to protect, in order to preserve. And when we don't have clarity on these things, it means that we might run the risk of confusion on things like the Trinity, on things like the Incarnation, on things like the Gospel itself. For the sake of the church, there are simply times when we can't agree to disagree, but we need to stand firm in what the church believes. But does that mean that we do it to simply be correct? Do we simply do this to be on the right side of things? Is theological precision for its own sake the fuel that drives our burden for this call? I don't think so. I don't think that we correct false teaching simply because we know that we're right. We do it because first and foremost, what we believe is a matter of life and death. What we believe about Christ, about his gospel, about so many different things is not indifferent. It's a very matter of life and death. It has eternal significance for our souls and for the souls of those around us. And so Paul is saying that these teachers are in a very precarious place, that this false teaching is something that is dangerous. It's something that puts lives at stake. And we see this throughout 1 Timothy in general. Uh, if you look at chapter 4, verse 12, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And in chapter 1, verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. This is a very real and urgent situation that Paul is trying to address with Timothy. And yet, I think... I don't want to skip over the fact that at this point in the letter, Paul has in mind that these teachers are still first and foremost sheep. Yes, there are some that have and will depart from the faith. There are some that have made a shipwreck of their faith. But it's almost as if Paul is saying, not these men, not yet. And I think that's what derives his response to these teachers. Because if we compare this response to false teaching to his response to the false teachers in Galatians, we get very, very different pictures. In Galatians 5.12, he says that those who unsettle you, he wishes that he would they would emasculate themselves. Very, very strong language. And yet here, we don't see this urge to condemn or to cut them off from the fellowship, but instead we see an urge to correct. We see an urge to call them back to the fold. You see, this correction, it's more the strong rebuke of a gentle but loving father. And that's what should compel us to when we see false teaching in the church, love and compassion for the dangerous situation that these brothers and sisters might find themselves in. Because if we lead with correction, if we lead with an urge to calling back, it means that we are trying to shepherd them back to the truth, which means that we are trying to shepherd them back to life itself 
the life that is only found in Christ and in his gospel. You know, there's a song lyric that says that the opposite of love is indifference. And I think that that applies here. I think that there are times when we can be politely indifferent to a brother or sister that finds themselves in the midst of false teaching. That we don't want to overstep. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to go beyond our bounds. And we think that that's polite. We think that that's loving. But I think this text shows us that that is, in fact, the very opposite of love. To be politely indifferent towards the error that a brother or sister finds themselves in is to leave their life hanging in the balance, depending on what they're caught up in. And I think it's also a mistake to look at these situations and just make it a them problem. Do you know what I mean by that, a them problem? That, you know, I think we might be prone to this and uh, thinking that, that the danger is confined to the person that's struggling with it and that it's, uh, the danger is completely confined to them and that there's no way that it will affect the rest of the flock because it's a them problem. And I think that we can perhaps be prone to this sometimes in reform circles because we have such a robust theology, which is a good thing, and we feel responsible for that. I think many of us in this room have a personal responsibility to know our Bible well, right? And so uh, we almost treat false teaching at times like a non-communicable disease, right? It's like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about the things that they were, they're wrapped up in? Did you hear what they said the other day? What a shame. I really hope that they get better sometime. But I don't think that's how Paul is speaking here. I think Paul is speaking from a, an awareness and a conviction that we are all members of one body, So if disease is threatening any part of the body, that means that it's a threat to the entire body, that that disease can slip and make its way through the very rest of the body. And again, we see these warnings from Paul in Acts 20 and in 1 Timothy, Acts 20, 29. He says that teachers will rise up not just to put themselves in error, not just to make a shipwreck of their own faith, but to draw away the disciples after them. Or in 1 Timothy 4.16, he urges Timothy to keep a close watch on his life and on his teaching because doing so will both save himself and his hearers. As we care about these things, it extends far beyond ourselves. It extends beyond those that aren't caught in it and extends beyond those that are caught in it. We are all one body and this disease spreads throughout the entire church. And I think this comes, uh, becomes clear to us when we read verse 4. It highlights the false teaching's danger to the entire body. So if you look at verse 4, it says, "...nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith." I don't know if this is true of other editions, but if you have an ESV, you'll see next to stewardship there's a footnote. In your app, you can click on it and your Bible, you can look down at the bottom of the page, and it says that stewardship can be uh, translated, the Greek word can be translated as good order. And this Greek word is getting to this idea that the church is the household of God. And since it's the household of God, it's important that it be kept in good order. And so what Paul is trying to get at is that the fruit of this false teaching is creating disorder in God's house that this speculation, that this false teaching, that all these things that they're wrapped up in, it actually undermines the order of the entirety of God's house. It spreads far beyond just a them problem. And we see the fruit. We see that it produces speculations in verse 4, vain discussion in verse 6, a lack of understanding in verse 7, and a misuse of the law in verse 8. And at this point, I think it's worth asking, how did the church get to this point? If you stop and if you just take a step back, like, yes, we can acknowledge that Paul said this would happen. But at the same time, isn't it so surprising? We're talking about the immediate succession of a church after Paul's ministry there. We're talking about the Apostle Paul laboring in Ephesus for three years, sending his best guy to take over that work. And as soon as he's leaving, he is already aware that false teachers will come in from the outside and rise up from within. Isn't that shocking? Doesn't that make you ask, what happened? 
even if Paul said it was going to happen. Isn't that shocking? How does this happen? And I think it shows us that no church, no matter how strong their preaching is, no matter how strong their body is, that not that we are more prone in any way, but it does show at the very least that we are not immune to this. We are not immune to this danger. So how does it happen? How does this culture of false teaching take root in a church? Well, ironically, uh, I think in order for false teaching to truly take root in a church, it often has to start with the truth. It's much harder to discern falsehood when a bit of truth is sprinkled in. It's a lot easier to accept a modified truth than an outrageous lie. And that seems to be partially what happened here. It's uh, in Acts 20, 29, he says that these teachers will speak twisted things. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 6, it says that they have swerved and that they have wandered from the gospel. Well, you only twist things that were straight to begin with, and you can only swerve and wander away from an original focal point. You can only swerve away from something that you were originally aiming at. And I think this proves true. And unfortunately, I think we are seeing this trend play out in churches time and time again. You just have to look in the past number of years. I'm out of touch, so I don't even remember how recent it is, but it feels recent to me that the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, right, is you follow that trajectory of Mark Driscoll's ministry. When I first became a Christian, I had some pastors that weren't necessarily Reformed but were interested in that world, and they loved Mark Driscoll. We played uh, the music from his ministries at our church. He recommended the books to us, his sermons, and he seemed like such a positive influence in introducing a kind of reformed evangelical uh, preaching to a wider church world. And then, as the podcast shows, over time, he unfortunately seemed to drift farther and farther away from the centrality of the gospel. He seemed to drift farther and farther away from the biblical view of the church, from the biblical view of what it means to be a pastor. But this all started from a solid gospel foundation, and then it eventually drifted. A slow downward spiral that seeks its uh, claws into the very culture of a church. We could even look at the other Mars Hill up the road and what happened with Rob Bell. I didn't live in West Michigan during this time, but he seemed to be doing uh, somewhat positive work, and then all of a sudden he wrote a book that denies the existence of hell and other really important doctrines. Again, you can start out strong and then drift away from the truth and twist it. But False teaching can also arise in other ways, too. I don't think it just comes from a mixture of truth and falsehood, but I think it can also come from an unbalanced understanding and application of the truth. I think it's possible to simply use the truth, but to have such an unbalanced understanding and application that it can be out of line and almost veer into the category of falsehood. So let me tell you uh, what I'm talking about. I think that we all have things, uh, either in Scripture or in general, that, that are good things. They're things that we're passionate about. They're things that God calls us to be passionate about. And yet, these good things can sometimes become ultimate, can't they? I think we've all heard a pastor uh, a time and again that gets on their hobby horse, that they have their topic that they really love, and they elevate to the status of ultimate importance, something that I'm always trying to be aware of when I preach, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> and so... Um, and usually what happens when we take these good things and we can elevate them to ultimate importance, we can have a skewed understanding of how to apply them, how to use them. It can usually lead to false conclusions and rotten fruit. Uh, so, for example, if I take the good desire for growth and holiness and I make that the most ultimate thing, I might draw the conclusion that perfection is attainable in this life, that that is what Christians are called to, and then my fruit might start to look like legalism. It might start to look like pride. Or maybe we take it from the other way. Perhaps I want to hold on to the good idea that the law no longer condemns me in Christ. But then I conclude that as a result, Christian obedience doesn't matter. And then my life is in shambles. And I live it any way that I see fit under the sun. And I think Paul is hinting that something similar is going on here at Ephesus that they're taking something good, 
but they have a disordered understanding of it and a false application of it. So if you look in verse 7, it says that these false teachers desire to be teachers of the law. Um, I don't want to press this too hard, but the Greek word uh, that's translated as teachers of the law is almost exclusively used for the Pharisees throughout Scripture. And I don't think that these men were Pharisees, but maybe there's a Pharisaical bent in the type of false teaching that they had. And I think this plays out in verse 8 because what Paul seems to be combating is that the core of this false teaching and the fruit of it is a misuse of the law. Because see what Paul does. In verse 7, he says that they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't have understanding, that they make confident assertions. And then he has this caveat almost in verse 8, like we know that the law is good, but you have to use it lawfully. And it seems to... Uh, bring forth this idea that they haven't been using it lawfully, that they have been misusing the law in some way. And so how does Paul correct this? Well, he says that to use the law properly is to understand that the law was not laid down for the righteous, for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient. He's simply saying that the first use of this law is to expose sin, and to drive people to Christ. But how do you use the law when you already have people in your congregation that have had their sin exposed, that have turned to Christ? Again, I don't want to push things too far, but it seems like this misuse of the law, in some way these false teachers are taking the law and they're creating an additional burden on the people of God. Maybe it's pharisaical, maybe it's not, but in some way the law isn't being used to expose sin and drive people to Christ, but to add further burdens on the people of God. And so they took a good thing, the law. They took interesting things, uh, myths and genealogies, and they elevated them to extreme importance to the point where they had a misaligned understanding and a faulty application of these things, which led them to drift away from the gospel and to confuse the people of God. And yet, even though Paul offers this correction to their understanding or use of the law, I want us to be very clear here that this is not the overarching correction that Paul is after. Yes, there is an issue here. There's a charge to correct it. He seems to correct this uh, misuse of the law, but that's not the correction that Paul is aiming at. Because the misuse of the law doesn't ultimately need a better understanding of the law. If the problem is the misuse, it's not like it needs a good use, but instead, this misuse of the law needs the gospel. It needs the gospel. And this, again, is what Paul points to again and again in Acts 20 and in 1 Timothy. He says that he testifies repentance and faith, that his primary aim is to testify the gospel of the grace of God, and that he commends the elders to the God and the word of his grace, and the very last verse of our passage, that he has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see, the cure for a culture of false teaching is for the gospel to take root. Not a better understanding of the law, but for the gospel to take root in a way that produces a gospel culture. In particular, it means that the church needs to be dedicated to a faithful focus on the gospel in a way that aims at love. Which brings me to my final point, a gospel aim. If you'll look with me at verse 5, Paul says that the aim of our charge is love. There's this charge to correct, but over and above it, there's this overarching aim at love. And he's saying that it's, it's not enough to simply combat false teaching with correct doctrine. That's good, that's true, that is what we are called to do. But our correction always has a greater aim than merely correcting itself. We seek to correct error with the gospel, and our correction should ultimately adorn the gospel in love. And that's what I'm trying to get at when I use that phrase, gospel culture, that we have a, a community of people that are adorning the gospel, that believe the gospel in such a way that it's producing an atmosphere of gospel service for one another. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland uh, speaks about gospel culture in this way. He says, It is the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, vibe, feel, 
tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. It's not enough to simply know your doctrine, tell the people that they're wrong, call it a day, and head home. Plenty of people have good theology and yet live in a way that doesn't adorn the gospel, yet live in a way that doesn't aim at love, yet live in a way that doesn't help produce a gospel culture in our churches. And Ray Ortland, once again, he gives a very clear example of this uh, in this talk that he gives by showing a picture of a bunch of people standing in front of a banner that says, Jesus saves. And that's great. We all believe that, right? Jesus saves. How wonderful that we have a group of people gathered in front of this banner. But then you immediately realize in the foreground that this certain group of people is actually Klansmen in full regalia standing in a church. You see, they had the right message hanging behind them, but they don't understand the irony that the gospel didn't take root in such a way to produce a life of gospel, to produce a gospel atmosphere that leads uh, to love, that leads to a gospel living that protects and preserves the church. And I think that as extreme as that example is, I think it gets to a very important point that our doctrine is so, so, so vitally important. And yet at the same time, merely being correct is not enough because the way in which we live shows what we functionally believe. We can confess all day that we believe in the gospel, that we believe that Christ is Lord, that we believe that he has freed us to love each other. And yet the way in which we live uh, can so often betray that and show what we functionally believe. Does that mean that there's no room for people who are in seasons of spiritual depression or that are struggling? No, that is not what I'm saying. Don't hear that from what I'm saying. I'm simply trying to say that what we profess and confess should evidence itself in the way in which we live, that there should be a gospel aroma and atmosphere about this church, about harvest in our lives that starts with an understanding of what Christ has first done for us, that this right understanding leads to a right lived response. See, the gospel, it has to shape the very fabric of our DNA, both personally and as an entire community of believers. And when this kind of gospel culture takes root, a community emerges that's not marked by disorder, it's not marked by drifting, it's not marked by division, but it's marked by faith, it's marked by hope, and it's marked by love. It's a community that's watchful over error, but that can also correct it with the ultimate aim of love, with the ultimate aim of restoration, with the ultimate aim of preserving the heart of Christ's gospel and his church a heart to rescue those who have gone afloat and are at risk of perishing. It's a church that protects and it's a church that preserves. But what does this look like practically? How does this gospel aim and this gospel culture bear out in our lives? Well, I think it looks like two things, or at least a twofold thing. It looks like a faithful focus on the gospel that is adorned with love. So first, when I say faithful focus, I simply mean that our gaze has to be transfixed on the glory of Christ and his gospel. This alone is what we are called to make ultimate, Jesus. No other peripheral issue but Christ himself and his gospel. And it means that as we are thinking about this context of false teaching, that we don't necessarily need to be a church filled with theological masterminds to combat false teaching. That preserving doctrinal purity, it doesn't mean that we need to have uh, a whole committee of theological micromanagement that's German-engineered uh, to make sure that we don't step out of line. Now, first and foremost, it means that we need to be a church where uh, we are so focused and fixed on Christ, right? Just like the navigators, we have that fixed point by which we orient our entire lives, and that point is Christ, that we behold him, that we love him. And... Uh, and that that leads to a culture that can stand up against the threat of false teaching. And again, don't get me wrong. Of course theology, of course precision, and of course truth matter. I would not have gone to California 
at Westminster, of all places, for four years if I didn't think that those things were important. But I simply mean to say that you don't need to be discouraged in thinking that you need a PhD in theology to have confidence in the face of doctrinal sway, doctrinal division, or doctrinal drift. We have what we need in Christ and in his gospel. And that the first step towards confidence in this area, towards love for our brothers and sisters, is to simply fix our eyes on Jesus. He has given us what we need, and he continues to grow us day by day. And that's how Paul can encourage the Ephesian elders to be alert, to pay careful attention, to keep your focus fixed on Christ, that fixed object of our faith. And he encourages them, as he encourages us, that as, as you do, um, as your love for him grows, that means that your love for what Christ loves will also grow. As our love for Christ grows, so will our love for the things that he loves, his gospel, his people. And that will lead us to try and serve and love, to adorn the gospel in a manner of love and preservation, which brings us to that second aspect of Paul's gospel charge, that it aims at love. The gospel isn't just something that we believe in in the abstract and we separate from the rest of our lives, but it's something that we are called to vitally believe in to the point that we adorn it in love. And there's obviously a lot of confusion uh, regarding the idea of love, um, but just like the Boston song, I can very clearly affirm that it is more than a feeling. Um, in fact, it's a feeling that's combined with active service and obedience. And that might sound a little strange to you, perhaps not in a church community, but at least to the world, to identify love first and foremost in terms of obedience and service. Uh, just as we read this morning in Romans 13, verse 10, Paul says throughout his letters that love is the fulfilling of the law. But given everything that Paul just said, how can this be the case? Uh, Paul just said that the law is laid down for unbelievers. He just corrected the false teachers for misusing the law to burden other believers. So how can he now say that the aim of the gospel is love and then connect love with obedience to that law? Well, um, spoiler alert, but he can say it because of the gospel. And I know we know that to be true. We know that... Christ first loved us, and he showed his obedience in loving us to the point of death on the cross. That's how far his obedience went, and it was driven by love, that he died on the cross in order to reconcile wayward sinners. He was the first one to go out and to save people ensnared by false teaching, because that's where every single one of us is naturally found. He went out to save us. He went out because he loved us, and that love was shown forth in obedience to the point of the cross. And because of that, because of that obedience, because he lived for us and died on our behalf, we have freedom to view the law in a different way, to view obedience differently. Because, you, because before Christ, you know, we view the law and we see it as something that's looming over us. We see it as something that we are called to obey perfectly, but no, we never can. And it's something that we follow with fear and with dread. And yet we see that Christ, because of love, fulfilled the law on our behalf. He fulfilled the law for our sake. He lived perfect life for us and died for us so that we could be free to obey the law, that we could be free to love somebody other than ourselves, to love Christ and to love one another. And so... We see that we've been given this freedom, and so as a result, we, don't, we no longer obey simply because we must, but we obey because we can. We obey because we love Christ, and we love the things that he loves. And I don't want us to hear this simply as uh, so many sermons go, right? Christ did this for you, so now you can do the same thing in a lesser way for others. I don't want us to miss the point that, yes, that's true. Christ frees us to love others because he first loved us. But that will only become compelling. That will only create a gospel culture. That will only take root, again, if you first and foremost fix your eyes on Christ. I've said it before, and I will probably say it a million other times, that Christ is first and foremost a gift before he is an example. Not that those two things are separated, but we need to have the gospel take such deep root in our lives 
that the object of our affections is so strong that we can't help but usher forth love that is shown in service to others and obedience towards God's word. And so we don't obey because we must, but because we're free to. And I think that aim of love um, is further, further, um, further defined by Paul. Again, in verse 5, if you'll look at me, look with me briefly uh, to verse 5. It says that our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is how it's different from merely obeying the law out of fear. We see Paul saying that we have this aim of love. We have this aim of service. But it needs to be grounded in these three things. It needs to be grounded in a pure heart, in a good conscience, in a sincere faith. These are the realities that ground and shape our loving response. A pure heart. 1 Peter 1.22, it reminds us that we have been purified through our obedience to the truth of the gospel. We have been given a pure heart. This is a passive experience. It's something that God creates within us. So only a heart made pure by the Spirit through faith can both pursue obedience towards God and genuine love for others shown forth in service. We look at a good conscience. Uh, John Piper, he talks about this passage, and he describes a good conscience as walking in the light. And again, this is something that we are called to pursue but is only possible by the Holy Spirit's work within us, right? That is exactly what Dale was talking about this morning, that it's the Spirit that produces these things within us as we move forward. And then finally, a sincere faith. A sincere faith is what leads us ultimately to a pure heart, to a good conscience, to loving obedience, because faith unites us to Christ, who works within us to cleanse our hearts and consciences, and who allows us to truly love Him, who transforms us to love Him and His gospel, and to lead a life of gospel transformation. And these three, uh, these three things that ground, these three realities that ground and shape that aim of love are tied together beautifully in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, uh, which I just want to read for you guys. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The church will develop a gospel culture that can supplant and remove the culture of false teaching as it cultivates that faithful focus on the gospel that is aimed at love towards Christ and towards one another. So we covered quite a bit of ground in this passage, but there are just a few encouragements that I want to leave you with as we close. The first one is that as we talk about false teaching, as we talk about confusion, it's not lost on me that there might be some of you in this room that feel lost, that feel confused, that feel like you don't know what you believe. Perhaps you've heard about the gospel. Perhaps you've even been catechized, but there's not this vital understanding that Christ is the object of your faith, that he is that fixed point around which your entire life needs to be oriented. And if that's you this evening, I would just implore you to, to draw near to Christ, to know that he lived a perfect life on behalf of sinners, that he died on the cross to reconcile sinners to himself, that the final say in your life does not need to be one of judgment, does not need to be one of death, but it can be one of life that is found in faith in Christ. And there's a lot to that, and I would encourage you to find me, to find some of our pastors or our elders. Some of them have name tags, others don't, I don't. But, but find us, because we want to talk to you about this. We care about you. We want you to know this life-altering reality that is only found in Christ. And for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that are in the midst of a church and we've been confronted with theological error, we've been confronted with division, with diversion, or anything else, 
I want to encourage you to have confidence and to press on, to not think that you are out of your depth to handle these things because we have Christ and Christ has given us his spirit. We have what we need to move forward in a way that preserves and protects the church. We can move forward in a way that helps us to keep our bearings and that helps one another keep our bearings, to keep pointing each other towards Christ. That's the Christian life, right? That we're just called to press on. We're called to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and that we can do this for one another. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? The fact that we can all minister to each other that the Spirit has all blessed us richly with various gifts and abilities, and that these can all work together to protect and preserve the gospel and Christ's bride. So I want to encourage you, press on, keep going, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And as a final encouragement, I just want us to remember that this work, it's a big work, it's an important work, but it's not ultimately a work that is left up to us because it's Christ who establishes his church. It's Christ who has recreated us, who has made us all into a new creation, made us into living stones, building us up into a temple of God. He is the one who establishes us, but he's also the one who continues to preserve the church, to allow the church to persevere because he's sitting at the right hand of God. Look at how Paul opens up his letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So often in Scripture, when we see the language of hope, it's pointing to the fact that Christ has ascended, that Christ is at the right hand of God, and that he is ruling and reigning over all things, and that includes his church, and he is not going to leave that work unfinished. So even as we face all these various difficulties, even as we try to hold fast, to press on, to stay alert, we know that the efficacy of this, we know that the result of this will not ultimately be up to us, but it's up to Christ. He is the one that is walking alongside you now and will continue to walk alongside you till the end of the age, until our faith becomes sight. So let's press on and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that that you don't leave us to our own devices, um, that even as you have left, that you, even though as uh, you are not with us in body, you say that it's better for you to be away, for you send your spirit to strengthen and encourage us, that as you are away, you are reigning, you are seated, that you will preserve your church and your bride, and that one day you will present her blameless and spotless before you. And Lord, we can all be tempted by falsehood. We can all be ensnared by false teaching in one way or another. And I just pray, Lord, that, that you combat unbelief in all of its forms, that you combat unbelief in those of us that haven't placed our faith in you, and that you combat unbelief in those of us that have, because we all continue to struggle with that temptation towards unbelief. But Lord, we know that you will preserve your gospel. We know that you don't need us to defend and preserve your gospel, that it is strong and sufficient in itself, that you will do that work, and yet you have invited us to attend to that work. You have invited us to play a part in proclaiming your word and preserving it and honoring it and, and simply uh, fixing our gaze on you, fixing our gaze on your gospel. And Lord, I pray that for Harvest for all of us individually and corporately, that we could adorn your gospel, that it could be the very atmosphere that we breathe, that it can supplant unbelief and that it can seep through all the things that we do, that we think, that we pray about, and that we can orient ourselves and orient harvest itself around Christ, that he may be that fixed point, that he may be that guiding North Star, that in all of our navigations in this life, it can direct us towards Christ alone. And we look to you for your help and for your guidance as we pursue this. We know that the power doesn't come from us at all, but it's only in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one more change from the bulletin. Uh, we are going to be singing the church's one foundation.
in a second. Church is one foundation. Will you rise and sing? as you go out to live the week that God has ordained for you, as you go out as ambassadors of Christ and servants of the Lord, trusting in Him, go with God's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and guide you till Christ's return. Amen.